If you haven't already, please open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 8 this morning so that we can look once more at the divine compassion of our Savior in Mark 8, 1 to 10. I'm going to read this for you. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Now, again, here's what we, we obviously pick up on when we read that narrative. We, we notice that this, this miracle here sounds much like the miracle feeding of the 5,000 that we read about, studied about back in Mark 6. But the last time I preached about this text, I pointed out that there are many important differences in this narrative. And today what I'm going to try to do is point out what is both similar and different here as we make our way through the passage. And, and I really want to do that because I think that Mark wants us to remember the miracle back in Mark 6 as we make our way through this very narrative but he also wants us to see why the feeding of the 4,000 here is so radically different from the miracle in Mark 6. And I think he helps us to see that by, by shining a light on three things this morning. He, he shines a light on, number one, the unusual setting of Christ's compassion in verse 1. And then, then he shines a light on the unique revelation of Christ's compassion in verses 2 through 4. And then Mark goes on to shine a light at the end on the unlimited supply of Christ's compassion in verses 5 to 10. So let's just begin there in verse 1. And when we read verse 1, I'm not going to just go through it completely, but I want us to pause at different points. And I want us to really look at this verse carefully. We're going to analyze this verse because there's much meaning packed within this one introductory statement. So let's look at this again, and, and just in these few words, what's happening here is Mark is shining a light on the unusual setting of Christ's compassion. So he begins, in, in those days when again a crowd, a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd. Now, just looking at this in a cursory way, you don't notice all the details that are there, but when you really pour into it and look at it carefully, you begin to see that, that these phrases within the very beginning of this set up the context, set up the very 
location and situation of what's going on here. And so the phrase in those days is significant. If you don't know what's going on here, this is really significant because you need to understand the context from which these days he's speaking of flows out of. And this, this is actually intended for us to uh, connect what is about to happen in the narrative before us to what has just happened in chapter 7, verses 31 to 37. And so in 31 to 37, we learned that after Jesus healed the man who was deaf and mute, Jesus then remained in this Gentile region of the Decapolis. And, and I think that we need to remember that there's a reason Jesus is there in the first place. I think we need to remember that he, he first went into this Gentile, unusual region right after a conflict with the Pharisees about what truly defiles a person before God. He did that there in 714 to 23. And, and there in that conflict, Jesus corrects the Pharisees and, and he tells them immediately and up front that it wasn't food that defiles a man's heart, rather the heart of man, the sin within the man is the source of all spiritual defilement. And then immediately after, immediately after that conflict, here's what takes place. Jesus turns his back on the Pharisees, if you will, and intentionally heads off into what they considered a defiled country. He heads off on a journey into this Gentile region, and he does that to make a very important point. He's making a point because the Pharisees considered the Gentiles to be the height of all uncleanliness, right? They were ethnically defiled and unclean in their sight. But, but of course, the Pharisees were not. They weren't defiled at all because, of course, they were Abraham's offspring. So they were superior to the Gentiles in every way. And Jesus, the Messiah, turns his back on them and turns to the Gentiles. So when Jesus goes into this Gentile region... And he begins to actually include Gentiles in his messianic mission by showing them God's compassion, right, in the flesh. He's, he's basically delivering a very clear statement to the self-righteous Jews of his day by showing them that no one, not even Gentiles, are beyond the reach of God's grace and compassion. I'm going there to them. So, so this journey, as we come to verse 1 there, in those days, this journey all begins here. And, and this, this journey for his disciples would have, been, would have been tough because I'm pretty sure the disciples were just about as shocked as any other Jew of the day when they turned and went into that region. So I'm sure that it wasn't limited to the, to the Pharisees that were shocked by this. I'm sure they were kind of taken aback, like, okay, we're just going to step over the border, then we're going to step back and dust our feet off, right? We're not really going in there. But Jesus takes them deeply in there. And I'm sure every step of the way into this Gentile territory, there was a religious tug of war going on within the disciples' hearts because of their upbringing. And now they're in a supposedly defiled region that they're never allowed to go into without quickly getting out of and cleaning off their feet and turning away from these people. But now they're there and they're dwelling there. And, and they were probably questioning, I think, probably in their hearts. We don't know exactly what they were thinking, but we do know about their religious upbringing. So I'm sure in their hearts they were questioning things like this, like, what in the world are we doing here? 
It's one thing to come in here, but why are we now lingering here for so long? Because this wasn't a quick trip across the border. This was a 120-mile journey by foot into this region. And they, they, the disciples themselves, they couldn't fully grasp, they didn't fully understand Jesus' purposes here in this region. And they didn't understand it because their dimly lit spiritual eyes couldn't comprehend the fullness of what Jesus would do and who he is. They were getting glimpse of him. They were understanding him. They were following him. They were believing in him. But they didn't fully see him in all his glory and here, he's going to change that in a Gentile region. This, this trip actually would eventually shine a light on them about their future mission into Gentile lands as apostles. So they needed to go here with him. They needed this training with him. There's a confession that comes later on in chapter 8 that is amazing that comes from Peter that talks about who Jesus truly is. That came because of this journey in this region, this unusual setting. So let's look back there at the rest of 8.1 as, as Mark's going to shine some more light on this unusual setting of Christ's compassion in this Gentile region. Notice that, that verse 1 goes on to say, In those days when again a great crowd had gathered. Okay, so it's a great crowd, Mark. We understand that. It's a big crowd, obviously. But, but who is in this crowd? What's this crowd look like? Who's, who's it made up of? Well, since it flows directly out of Mark seven thirty-one to 37, that means that this crowd was mainly a Gentile crowd. There might have been a few Jews there, but it was made up mostly of Gentiles. And it's made up in part, probably, of the men who were there at the healing of this deaf and mute man. The men who were astonished, it says, beyond measure when Jesus healed this man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. Remember that crowd as we, we studied that before? Remember that crowd? That was the crowd that was absolutely so amazed that they couldn't keep quiet about what Jesus had done. Even though Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, it says the more zealously they proclaimed it. That's, that's part of this crowd. Those guys are likely there in those days, in that crowd. And I'm sure because of that, these guys not being quiet, not holding it in, that crowd began to get larger and larger and larger because these guys were telling everyone along the way about the one who does all things well. Then, then we have to think about who else is in this crowd. Who, who could possibly be in this crowd from what we read about in Mark 7? Well, you could add to this crowd, I think, people who probably had been hearing about Jesus for a long time from the Decapolis. And they'd been hearing about it from a man from their own region, their hometown boy, who had been telling others how much the Lord had done for him and how the Lord had mercy on him. And that man is found back in Mark 5. The former demoniac. Besides the people who had heard his testimony, you could add to this probably the people who heard the testimony of the Syrophoenician woman and her daughter, who Jesus delivered from a demon in Mark 7, 24 to 30. So, so now you get to get, get a picture of why the size of this crowd was considered to be great. It was an unusual crowd in an unusual setting, but it was a great crowd. It was a large crowd. But there is a distinction here in this crowd that's made in that verse. 
verse 1, I hope you noticed it. I hope you noticed that when, when Mark writes this, he uses the word again. What's he mean by that? Well, he says again, when again a great crowd had gathered. That means there must have been another crowd gathering around Jesus one time before. It's not this crowd. And so who is that? I think he adds the word again here because he knows exactly who he's talking about. He wants us to remember the last time he wrote about a great crowd gathering in this gospel account that he's writing. Because that crowd at that time that he's referring to was a crowd much like this one. They were in a remote place and they were hungry. They needed food. And that was the crowd back in Mark 6. But here... Here is where this particular narrative takes an amazing turn because the last time a great crowd had gathered around Jesus was in Galilee, and it was a Jewish crowd. But this time, this time, the great crowd is made up of mainly Gentiles in a Gentile land. And what's going to happen here in this most unusual setting is truly unique. So secondly, in verses 2 to 4, Mark begins now to shine a light on the unique revelation of Jesus' compassion. And to do that, what Mark does first is he shines a light on just, just how hungry this crowd was, right? Just how hungry this crowd is, not just for food. No, they got hungry while they were there, but they were hungry for something else that brought them there and that kept them there. They were hungry to listen to Jesus and witness his power. Look at verses 2 to 4. It says, I have compassion on the crowd, Gentile crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they they will collapse. They will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place. Now, I find verse 3 interesting at the end of it. The size of this crowd, 4,000 men plus women and children, right? How did Jesus really know? I mean, did he, did he know that all these people traveled, you know, a short distance, a long distance? How did he know this? I mean, yes, he's um, omniscient. He knows all things. I understand that. But I think this is more of a reference to his personal knowledge here in this moment. I'm sure Jesus didn't just teach them and do miracles with them. I'm sure Jesus talked to them. Where are you from? How long did it take you to get here? Wow, that's a long trip. This this Jesus is compassionate, right? He's compassionate. He's concerned about them collapsing on the way home. Because he knows personally they have traveled a long way and sacrificed a lot just to come and hear him. So. We think about what's going on here, and we should be amazed by this unique revelation of Jesus' compassion. Because here, here you can see really just, just how spiritually hungry these people are and how sensitive Jesus is to care for them. You can tell how hungry they are because, again, it says they came a long ways to listen to Jesus teach. And they've been with him. Listen, this is, this is amazing to me. I, look, you're going to follow Jesus, and you're going to go listen to him preach in the wilderness so you grab what you got on your you know, table and you throw it in a sack and you bring it with you to eat on the way. And when you get there a couple of days in, you know you're out, right? And so they've been with him now three days. And I'm sure all of their food is completely exhausted. It's all gone. And what's amazing to me about this is 
there is nothing in the text about a bunch of hungry Baptists complaining that it's time to eat. Right? No one is complaining about their physical hunger. But Jesus is aware. And now the reason they're not complaining is because I, I think, and I, I could be totally wrong, but I, I think from my own experience this is true as well. Listening to Jesus teach is enrapturing. To be in his presence and to hear the Savior speak and unfold the kingdom of God and explain God's grace and his mercy. I think it was a sign here by their eagerness to stay that there is nothing like listening to Jesus teach. They've never heard anyone teach like this. He was truly unique. And we'll see really quickly that they're going to learn just how unique he was and how unique his compassion for sinners truly is. Because even though even though they're out of food and nobody's complaining, I mean, again, they're, they're not even concerned, it seems like, right? But there's one there who's concerned. Jesus. Jesus is concerned about them of all people. A great crowd of needy Gentiles. This, this is truly good news for them, and this is truly good news for us. He's concerned about you. He will go to great lengths to care for you, all the way to a cross, to ensure that you are fully cared for throughout your life and eternity. So now, there in verse 2, Mark really, really sharpens his light. He turns the spotlight on on the unique revelation of Jesus' compassion there as he, as he writes and he says, he says, Jesus, out of his knowledge of what's going on, of his concern for them, his compassion for them, he says it out loud. He says, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now for three days. They have nothing to eat. Now, here's what we learn in that. We, we learned this last time, but we learned that Jesus is so moved with compassion that he stops what he's doing, right, to care for them. And then, then he's not only moved inwardly, because that's what the word compassion here is speaking of, and feeling in the gut, right? It's a feeling in the gut. He, he feels it from the gut. He has compassion on them. But then, then, he doesn't just remain inside of him. He declares it for the first time ever in the Gospels, verbally, that he declares, I have compassion for this people. The Gentiles. Of all people, I mean, the Pharisees, if they would have been there, they would have all fell over with heart attacks to hear this. That's part of Jesus' point. The self-righteous don't get it. The needy get compassion. The self-righteous get judgment. So here's, here's one of the, the great differences between this event and the event in Mark 6. A different crowd, an unusual revelation. Jesus declares his compassion verbally. But there's another big difference here. Look at verse 2 again, and I think that it's, it's important to note this. Notice that it's Jesus who steps up and takes the initiative to care for this great crowd. And it's clear that he does this, like I said, out of his unique compassion. And he, he does this purposefully in a way that the disciples couldn't quite grasp and understand at the moment. But he does this to teach his disciples an important lesson about their future mission as apostles, and to teach them about how badly they need compassion. Now, why do you think the disciples might need a lesson on compassion? Well, if you've been reading Mark's gospel along with us, I think you might know the answer to that. Do you recall what happened in the last time we saw a great crowd gathered in Mark 6 and the miracle feeding there? Well, the disciples didn't exhibit great compassion. 
Let's just put it that way. Instead, the disciples take it upon themselves in Mark 6 to interrupt Jesus in the middle of his teaching this time. Oh, so helpfully, so they could, they could inform Jesus, the Son of God. They could inform him, oh, this crowd is, is needing to be fed, Jesus. Would you just stop? You've got you to deal with this situation, right? And, and we've got nothing to share with these people. So, it, so, Jesus, you need to send them away. Send them home to get their own food. When I was actually writing this down in my notes, I had a memory just fled over me. I heard the same phraseology from my now brother-in-law when he was a teenager, and I would go to Sherry's house dating her and eat dinner with them. Many times he would say, why don't you just go home and eat your own food, all right? So this sounds familiar to me. I understand the heart behind this, um, and I was there a lot, so he had a reason to say that. So, And you can understand why I was there a lot, but that's, that's the way it was, and that's what's going on here. These guys have no sensitivity to the needs of the crowd, no real desire to serve the crowd, they're, they're wanting to feed their own bellies. They're, they're wanting to be out of that place. They're tired. They're worn out. Come on, Jesus. Cut the sermon short. Let's go home and eat. Let these people fend for themselves. But now, now in Mark 8, Jesus shows his compassion to them, to these uncompassionate disciples. The disciples here are going to get a mulligan, right? They're going to get a do-over. Because in this unusual location, Jesus is the one who now speaks up first. And he declares that he is moved with compassion for this crowd's need of food. Look at verse 3. He says it really clearly. If I send them away, here's my compassionate thought. If I send them away to their homes, they're going to faint, right? They came from a long way. I think when they heard those words from Jesus, they heard him declare his compassion. Then they, they heard him. He's initiating this concern and this care. I think when they heard this, they got the hint. I think they got the compassionate reminder they needed at this moment. Because I think we see a change in the disciples here. A great change. A great difference from what we saw back in Mark 6. Because look at how they respond to Jesus. It's so different than in Mark 6. Here... The disciples respond to Jesus' compassion by simply asking a humble question. How can one feed these people with bread here in a desolate place? I actually think when they say this, this is my own imagination, but based on the context and understanding what I have of Mark 6 and what's going on here, I think they said this with a smile on their face. How can one do this? Like wink, you know, at Jesus, like... You know, um, we can't. So, so if, you, if you don't read this correctly, you read this with a bias in your heart toward the disciples because they're not always the brightest guys in the room. So if you have that bias and you don't read this correctly, you're going to misunderstand, I think, the point that Jesus was making and teaching them here. And, and in light of the differences that we see in their response here compared to how they responded in Mark 6, you're going to have to come to some Odd conclusions, right? If you, if you ignore these things, these differences, you're going to have to think that these men have completely lost their minds and they've forgotten about the greatest miracle of feeding they've ever seen in their lives just a few months ago. All right? And I know they're dense at times. We acknowledge that. But they're not that dense. They're not brain dead. They understand Something has happened in the past. They know what had happened in the past. There's no way they've forgotten what had happened in the past. And I think their humble response makes that clear. I think their response here is greatly different than the response we see to Jesus in Mark 6. It's, it's different by a mile. 
Let me just remind you of how they responded in Mark 6. In, in Mark 6, their response to Jesus was selfish, doubtful, and sarcastic. I mean, they arrogantly thought that they needed to inform Jesus about the crowd's need for food and the time of day. And so they interrupt him and his teaching to do this. And then they go on and they arrogantly tell Jesus to get rid of these people, essentially saying, we want to go eat. We don't want to share it. Get rid of these folks. We got nothing but these little things. We can't do this. Let's just pack it up and go home. Send them away to the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. And then they shouldn't have been shocked when Jesus responds to that by saying to them, you give them something to eat. You guys are going to tell me what to do. Guess what? I'm going to give you something you can't do to humble you. But even even that abrupt statement by Jesus didn't stop the sarcastic hearts of these men. They, they went on. They went further in their arrogance and sarcasm at this moment in Mark 6. And they said, shall we go buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? This is so different than what we see in Mark 8. In Mark 8, their response is radically different. In verse 4, they, they seem to, I think, be humbly acknowledging their own limitations, their own inadequacy and their weakness. They're basically saying, we are inadequate to do anything, Jesus. But, but here's the great part in this. In, the, in their weakness of faith, in the dimness of their spiritual eyes, their yet blurry eyes, they're simply saying in this, they're saying, humbly saying, we, we, we can't do it, but, but we know one who can provide for these people. And I think when they said that, they look at him with hope and a smile on their face. I think he responds likewise. I think this is a totally different response from them, and I think it's also something that Jesus recognized as changing them, especially in light of how Jesus responds to this question they asked in Mark 8. In verse 5, look what it says. They say, his disciples answer him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Verse 5, and he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven. What's he not doing here? He's not correcting them. He's not speaking abruptly to them. I don't think Jesus is disappointed with them at this point. I think he's probably looking at them like a loving father would look at his child when he gets something right. Now, don't, don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. These are still dense men. All right? A glimmer of grace here. Light shining through their blurry eyes to make them see the glory of Christ in a moment. So don't, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying these disciples were... Uh, not still dull of heart, but that they could see clearly what was happening in this miracle, because they couldn't. They didn't understand still why they were there, what the purpose is, why is he telling us these things, um, why are we here with him? They don't understand all that yet. And, and, we, and we know that's true because later on in Mark 8, as we get to the next section next time, we're going to see that their spiritual eyes were still blurry. Now, believe it or not, I find hope in that, because our eyes many times are still blurry. As Christians, yet, yet here's what I know. God allows the dullest of hearts greater faith than we ever thought we had. And he does it to humbly allow us to rest in his power and his plan, even when we don't grasp what's going on at the moment. Listen, there's a lot of things that happen to you as a Christian that you have to take by faith. God's in control. God's directing these events. I don't get it. 
I don't see the lesson in it. I don't know why I'm here and what I'm going through is, is something that can actually be good for me. But God, you said all things work together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purposes. So I find much hope in the disciples' response here because I'm all too often just like them. I'm dull of heart, yet God still in his mercy grants my blurry spiritual eyes faith even in the midst of my own weaknesses. And he does that because, because of the unlimited supply of Christ's compassion, which is what Mark shines a lot on next in verses 5 to 10. And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven, and he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the people, and they, they set them before the crowd and had a few fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. An unlimited supply of compassion comes from Jesus. Here, like in Mark 6, we see the same type of miracle, similar in this, in this way. Jesus is multiplying a few loaves and fish for a great crowd, thousands of people, probably upper 15,000, 20,000 people. And like in Mark 6, Jesus does something that probably none of us would ever think about doing. Remember those dense disciples? He puts them to work. He chooses them to be his hands and his feet. He allows his disciples to distribute his compassionate gift to the people. Look at verses 6 and 7 again. He directs the crowd to sit down. He takes these seven loaves, it says, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. That's amazing to me. If you've been, been in any kind of ministry for any period of time, you've had people that you've tried to employ to serve and, and to get in there and labor. And, you know, here's what you learn real fast is they don't do it perfectly, and neither do we. But God chooses to work through the week so that he would be praised for the outcome. Notice here, though, that in uh, 6 and 7, that after, after Jesus gives thanks for the bread and the fish, he breaks them, and he hands them out to his disciples, they, they take them. They take those pieces. Now, this is just like in the miracle of Mark 6. It's basically all happening under his hand. It's not like a, you know, a pile of fish he makes and a pile of bread he makes. It's all happening as they come back to him to receive more. His supply is never ending. He keeps handing it out, handing it out, and it's multiplying, and it's multiplying. It's a miracle, a miracle of grace, a miracle of his compassion. So they, they keep coming to him. He keeps setting it out. And they keep going back to him, and he keeps setting it out. There's more supply than they could ever imagine. There's more and more and more. It never ends. Now put yourself in the sandals of the disciples at this moment. Those dense guys, they've got it wrong more than they've got it right all the way up to this point. And here you are being handed this duty to handle the miracle of Jesus and to care for these people. And he's breaking off a piece, and he gives it to you. Then you go back and, and, and you go out into the crowd and you feed this one large section and you, you come back with an empty basket and you walk up to him and he fills it up again. He just keeps on doing this and you keep going back and you keep receiving more and more and more. I mean, can you just imagine what the disciples had to be thinking and maybe even saying to each other? Look, look, those guys were guys. They were dudes, right? They were, they were bumping into each other, running to the front to hurry up and get in line to get more fish and more bread. And they're looking at each other going, look, look, he's doing it again, just like he did back in Galilee. His mercy is without end. Look, it's even reaching to the Gentiles. 
I think these guys were getting the lesson. Folks, Jesus' mercy is never-ending for those who trust in him. He has a never-ending supply of compassion for those who look to him in faith. He will fully satisfy our greatest spiritual needs and hunger when we come to him open-handed like these disciples, looking to him in faith to give us what we need. He continues to fill our hands. That's good to know as a Christian because there are times you become spiritually famished, weak. And here in Mark, I think we're assured that we can keep on coming back to Jesus over and over and over and over. And we will always find an abundance of spiritual nourishment when we are weak if we look to Jesus in our time of need. That's what these men are experiencing in a real physical way. But again, why did he pick them? Why is he doing this work through them? <laughs> I mean, think about this. He's picked the worst of the worst. I mean, I'm just, you know, Matthew. Look at Matthew's testimony. Good night. A tax collector. You know, I mean, he's picked the lowest of the low. The guys who keep failing, who keep popping off, who keep missing the point. He picks them and says, you're going to be my hands and feet. Why does he pick such spiritually weak men in his ministry to these needy people? First of all, because there's no other kind. There's no other kind. We're all weak. If he wasn't going to use weak people, he'd use no one at all. But he chose them. He chooses us. But primarily, speaking of the disciples who were to be the apostles, the twelve, here's ultimately why Jesus uses them here. He's preparing them for another and a greater compassionate mission in the future. One where they would be called on to carry what he gives them through his sacrifice on the cross to distribute to the nations. And he does that so that the nations would have their eyes open. They're defiled, needy sinners who need their eyes open. They need to see God's compassion and grace that's revealed in Jesus Christ. That's what these men were eventually going to be given by the hand of Jesus to distribute to the nations. He's preparing them for that. That's why Jesus involved them. He didn't need them for that. He doesn't need us for that. But he chooses to work through clay pots for our good and for God's glory. So the surpassing glory always belongs to God for any good that we do. That's why these men are serving Jesus and this crowd at this moment in Mark 8. He's preparing them as his apostles to compassionately carry his unending supply of grace and truth to the nations the very people they once despised. Now, finally, there in verse 8, Mark now focuses, really focuses his spotlight again on the unending compassion of Christ here. He, he tells us here that, that what Jesus supplied, I like this, this is so overlooked, so misunderstood, and so sometimes blown up out of proportion that it misses the point, but what Jesus supplied wasn't merely sufficient for 4,000 plus people. No, it was abundant. Look at verse 8. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. It wasn't merely sufficient. There was an overflow, an overflow of compassion. And in verse 8, we see that they ate and were satisfied, but, but then as you read further, you learn that these seven baskets of food were left over from this one feast. That's a lot of food. 
First of all, it's a lot of food for the, the group that's there. But then to have seven baskets left over, now this is, this is massive. Now, when you guys think about the baskets here, you're probably thinking about the little baskets that you see typically in little pictures, books, and things that the kids have. That's not what this is. These are large baskets. So here again is another difference between this miracle and the miracle of Mark 6. Two different accounts. In the feeding of the 5,000, after it was over with, the disciples gathered up 12 small lunch pail type baskets. Can you carry around with you? You didn't carry this basket with you, not the one we see here in Mark 8. The word that's used here for baskets is the same word for basket that's used describing the basket that the Apostle Paul was lowered down in from the Damascus wall there in Acts. So it's a man-sized basket, and there's seven of them, and they're full of the overflow. Think about this. And, and as, you, as you think about this, don't read commentaries about this. I... I read so many commentaries about the seven baskets, and I'm like, these guys should be writing fiction. Some of these guys were stretching as far as you can what these seven baskets possibly mean and the spiritual allegory that's going on and all this. And I'm like, come on. There, there's something significant going on with the seven baskets, but let's not, let's not stretch too far beyond the immediate context, Okay. So here's, here's what I'll tell you about the seven baskets. I, I don't think there is any kind of numeric symbolism going on here. But I do think there's an important spiritual lesson being taught here to the Gentiles and to all sinners. Because I think, I think these baskets, they actually do illustrate something. And they actually answer, I think, the faithful prayer of the Syrophoenician woman back earlier in Mark 7, who pleaded with Jesus... To give the Gentiles the crumbs of Israel. What's Jesus giving the Gentiles now? I don't see any crumbs there, do you? I think here Jesus is essentially illustrating an important lesson to her and every other sinner there who, who feels, feels, and maybe even here that feels that Jesus would, he, he would probably barely accept me into his family because I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not raised in the same background as most other Christians are. I, I have a really bad past. I don't have a pedigree. I'm not a Jew is what she's thinking. He, I think he's illustrating something to her and to us that, that would help quench that idea. That we would barely be accepted into the family of God. Because here's what I think. I think the abundance of leftovers here... In Mark 8, I think it tells us that Jesus has no concept of lesser children in the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, black or white, male or female. If you've been adopted by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are his eternal child forever. Loved by the Father, accepted by him through his atoning work. No lesser children in the kingdom of God. I think that would have been a massive living illustration of what Jesus did in answering her prayer. Give us the crumbs, Jesus. She says, no, no, your faith is great. That's what he's going to tell her there. I'm going to give you what you need because I'm full of compassion. His compassion isn't meted out a little to the Jews, a little to the Gentiles, a little more to the Jews. No, his compassion is overflowing to those who come to him in faith. Now, I think he's saying here in this illustration that, that all... All who look to me in faith, Jew or Gentile, oh, they're going to get a feast. 
They're going to get a feast of God's grace that will never end. And that feast will fully satisfy their spiritual hunger. Because, listen saints, Jesus does not merely give out crumbs to his children. He gives himself the bread of life to his people for their eternal good. He doesn't give out crumbs. He gives himself. I think that's the significance of this massive amount of leftovers to the Gentiles here. Now lastly, in verse Verses 9 and 10, as this narrative sort of wraps up, I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't send the crowd away until all his work is complete. It's only then does Jesus depart. That should sound familiar. Look at verses 9 and 10. There were about 4,000. They've got the broken pieces. They fed all the people. He sent them away, and immediately he got into a boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Okay. So, why does he do this? I mean, these people obviously were attracted to Jesus. They needed Jesus. Why did Jesus leave this region when he had so much to give to these needy Gentiles? They needed more than bread. They needed him. They needed his work to fully satisfy their greatest needs. He leaves them here because he's going to take a different journey He gets in this boat and he prepares for a journey that would take him to a place where he could and would do more than satisfy their physical needs. It was a journey that would eventually lead him to Jerusalem and a cross where he would complete his work on earth and depart. It led him there so that in that work on earth that he completes, he could then satisfy those who are truly spiritually starved to death by sin and those who are cut off from God and living in a desolation of spiritual defilement. Because on that cross that Jesus goes to after this journey and throughout these Galilean regions back to Jerusalem to a cross, there Jesus, the Son of God, would compassionately offer up his own sinless body to be cut off from God and to be put to death in the place of sinners and then rise on the third day and then later ascend into glory as our forever sympathetic, compassionate, great high priest interceding for us for all eternity. And listen, he did all of that. He completed his work and departed. He did all that because of how sinful and needy we are and how full of love and mercy he is that's the reason for your regeneration that's why as christians here and even those who have yet to believe you should look at this narrative and be amazed we should all rejoice over the unending feast of compassion that jesus the bread of life brought to us through his perfect life and his loving sacrifice and 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 like like the apostles Like the apostles, we're not apostles, but like them, those men who distributed the good news of Jesus Christ to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, let us now take what we've been given and go share our feast of Christ's unending compassion in the gospel, and let us share it with people that others may not ever want to reach. Let us share it with the defiled and the needy, and let's do it for the good of the lost and the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we humbly come to you amazed once again by your grace and compassion that's shown to us in Christ. We pray that we would feast upon the truth that we find here, 
And as it satisfies our soul, that we would take that feast and go share it with others who are starving due to their sin and lead them to the hope that we have in Christ, the all-sufficient one, the one who gave himself to give us life. We pray that you would be honored through this today. In Jesus' name, amen.